<laughs> I nailed it last time. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> hello, welcome to the virtual pub for some drinks, trivia and social history with absolutely no tasting notes. I am Tim, I'm joined by my drinking buddy, Illyri. How are you? I'm very well, how are you? I'm good, I've got a question for you. Oh God. Have you seen that episode of The Simpsons where um it was called king size homer when he gets really really fat and has to work from home but he's too lazy to work from home and he sets up a drinking bird next to his computer which keeps just pressing the letter y y y over again and that's his job the drinking bird is doing his yes job. yes i have so you are familiar with the drinking bird I am. Isn't there like a weird little scene in that episode where it all goes a bit trippy and a bit Dali-esque? With the drinking bird. Not that I remember from that. No? Okay. But I'm aware of the drinking bird Okay. There's there's another episode of the drinking bird, actually. Brother, can you spare two dimes where we meet his his long-lost brother, her pal, who um, is claiming to have created some inventions and he, um, he demonstrates the drinking bird. Anyway. Drinking bird is present in a lot of a lot of places, a lot of cultural references. Have you ever wondered how it works, though? I always Maybe assumed. Maybe you know. Explain it to me. No, I, I, but I've always assumed like because it's like often seen on like desks and stuff. It's gonna be like you know, like you've got the Newton's cradle, things like mm-hmm. that. It's, it's, it's along those lines. Right. So you think it's kind that's, of activated, activated by force, like a kinetic force thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And is it a perpetual motion machine? Yes. <laughs> okay, here we go. So, <laughs> um, so oh, one more question. When you put the so in your version, presumably you're you're putting it next to you know something it's drinking, it's drinking the glass of water, but the water's mm-hmm. just there as like decoration because it could be it could be anything. Like once you start it rocking, it's going to keep going. It doesn't matter what it's... Yeah, I'm thinking like whatever's inside the drinking bird is mm-hmm. very perfectly calculated so that it just yeah. moves in that motion all of the time. So this is, this is a uh, podcast about drinking facts. Let me give you some facts about the drinking bird. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, it's not a perpetual motion machine because that would okay. defy the laws of physics. Um, <laughs> without the water that it's dipping into and drinking, it will last for about eighty minutes, and then it will That's stop. That's a drinking. long time. It is okay. a long time, yeah, yeah. But yeah, about eighty minutes is its limit without actually drinking any water. So what's happening when you when you create these? So you've got a picture it first of all. For those of you who don't know it, it's it's shaped like a bird. It's you know, but essentially it's um a bulbous bottom. And then a thinner tube and then another bulbous bit on top. So it's got a fat bum and then a head and a beak and a hat on. 
So the, the bird's body, as it were, is filled through a small tap, a tiny hole in the head, and it's filled with methylene chloride, which is frozen, and then a vacuum is applied to get rid of the air, and then it's sealed, and that tap is hidden by the bird's hat, uh, where it comes in. Then the methylene chloride melts, and some of it evaporates uh, in, well, into vapour. And then the tube that connects it extends nearly to the bottom of the base part, and that fills with liquid, and it separates the bottom and the top bulbs, both of which have some vapour in it, and it means that the pressure between them is equalised. So that's what it is. It's two chambers equalised in pressure by connecting tube filled with liquid. And usually the liquid is like coloured red or something. Now, when the bird's head gets wet, it lowers the temperature at the top, in the top chamber, just enough for some of the gas to condense back into liquid. The liquid is a thousand times more dense than the gas, and so that changes the pressure, and it means that the liquid in the base rises up, and the liquid in the head that fills up causes the bird to become top-heavy, and it dips back into the drink. And then as it levels out to horizontal, or almost horizontal, some of the liquid returns to the base and vapour rises up to the top which causes it to right itself again, because it's no longer top-heavy. The mm. bird's head is wrapped in fabric, so that helps it absorb water, and then it spreads through the fabric evenly across the bird's face, which helps it evaporate more quickly. That means that actually it doesn't work very well in humid air, so you can't take it in the bath with you to drink your bath water. It's not going to evaporate. Um, <laughs> Also, the wet nose shifts its centre of gravity so that it falls the right way. It falls forward uh, rather than backwards, which I find is also true of me when I've been drinking. Um, <laughs> you, you can also increase the rate uh, it drinks. You make it go faster by using alcohol rather than water because the alcohol evaporates faster. So, if you were to use whiskey, it would drink twice as fast as if it was just water, which I find is also true of myself. I'm learning a lot, of, yeah. a lot of lessons from this drinking bird here. So, in effect, it's a heat engine. It applies the same principles that creates motion from different heat sources, like you would with a steam engine or a petrol engine. You get it? So, the evaporation takes mm. heat out of the top, the top gets cooler than the bottom, which causes liquid uh, gas to condense into liquid, sucks liquid up, and it, it all becomes much heavier and tips over. It's very clever. Um, I just thought his hat his... was for show. <laughs> yeah, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> just thought he was sassy. And that was operated by force, and it's not. It's operated by evaporation. So uh, there's, a, there's a big old history to this. Around the 1760s or so, German artisans had invented uh, something called a pulse hammer. And in 67, Benjamin Franklin of, uh, of the US visited Germany, saw a pulse hammer, and in 68 he decided to improve it. It consisted of two glass bulbs connected by a U-shaped tube rather than the straight one in the bird. One of the bulbs was partially filled with water in equilibri equilibrium with its vapour. 
and then holding the partially filled bub, a bulb in your hand, bub, would cause the water to flow into the empty bulb. So it's using the heat from your hand to give the same effect that I just mentioned. Then in 1872, the Italian physicist and engineer Enrico Bernardi combined three Franklin tubes to build a simple heat motor that was powered by evaporation in the same way to the drinking bird. In 1881, Israel Londis gets a patent for a similar oscillating motor. And then a year later, the Isker brothers get a patent for a similar motor. Unlike the drinking bird, the lower tank was heated, uh, which you can do with the drinking bird. You can put a heat lamp on the bottom rather than evaporate the top and it will still do the same thing because the same principles apply. Um, mm -hmm. So in theirs, the lower tank was heated and the upper tank uh, just air cooled. Um, but it's the same principle. Uh, their their patent that they got is now known as the Minto wheel. And then there's a Chinese drinking bird toy that goes back to the 1910s, which they called Insatiable Birdie, um, which is described in a book called Physics for Entertainment, which, you know, all physics is for entertainment, surely. Um, the, uh, the book explained the insatiable mechanism. It said, since the head tube's temperature becomes lower than the rest of the tail reservoir, this causes a drop in the pressure of saturated vapors in the head tube. And it's said that um, when Albert Einstein and his wife Elsa arrived in Shanghai in 1922, they were shown this insatiable birdie and they were fascinated by it. If you believe this, Albert Einstein reportedly spent over three months trying to figure it out. He refused to take it apart. He was just watching this drinking <laughs> birdie going, how does it work? And he didn't know. <laughs> Seems unlikely, but apparently. Then, uh, if we get to the US patent for the drinking birdies, we know it. Arthur Hillary in 1945, he suggested they could use acetone as a working fluid. Um, and then it was patented again in 1946 by Miles Sullivan, who was a PhD inventor scientist specialising in semiconductors uh, at Bell Labs in Murray Hill, USA. Um, and then I there was the at semiconductors, but <laughs> but you're going. Um, and then the the patent, as we know it now, was another year later, 1947. It does cite Arthur Hillary's patent, but it was uh, belonging to Robert T. Plate. There we go. So that's the drinking bird as we know it. It has a long history in physics and plenty of uses with, um, you know, with uh, heat engines and so forth before it ends up being a simple toy that apparently confused Albert Einstein for three months. Mm. Mm. Have you got one? I do not. Mm. I do not have one, but I'm now more fascinated by them than I thought. I don't think I ever really thought about it in the way that Einstein would have. I think, like you, I presumed a lot of it was to do with kind of things being set in motion. I didn't realise it was about evaporation. But mm. once I'd learned a bit about evaporation, I was like, what else should I talk about in regards to evaporation? And we've mentioned it before, but I thought I'd do a bit more on this. The, uh, the angel's share. So ah. you hear this around whiskey distilleries. Uh, which is when the whiskey is maturing in the cask, a small amount of it evaporates through the wood and into the atmosphere. So each year, about 2% of the liquid leaves the cask in this way. Um, and so over the years of kind of, you know, losing this amount to the atmosphere, sacri a sacrifice to the heavens, if you want, it's thought of giving the angels their share 
of the whiskey. Um, there are a few things that affect it. Um, I've got four main things here. One, the age. So generally speaking, spirits tend to evaporate more quickly when they're young and then they slow down as they as they age. So at the beginning of the whiskey's time, the angel share will be somewhere around three and a half to four percent every year. And then as it ages, uh, it, it keeps evaporating. It never stops. It's always going to evaporate, but it does slow down. Um, so by the end of a 20 year period, it will have lost about 40% of its volume, which is a lot. And the reason why it's much more expensive. <laughs> One of the reasons <laughs> it's much more expensive to have old whiskey. The cask makes a difference. So that's all about where the liquid meets the wood. Whiskey stored in smaller casks are going to evaporate more because they've got much more liquid to wood contact. Giggity. Uh, which also leads to faster maturation. Uh, the climate makes a difference. So um, a good way to think about that is, is by different locations. So bourbon warehouses in Kentucky, which is um, southeastern US, uh, the, the top floor of the warehouse might be around 50, 60 degrees in the summer, see? While the bottom might be 20. And that makes a difference to the speed of maturation and evaporation. So the casks on the warmer floors will lose liquid very quickly. Kentucky is humid as well, which means that water leaves the cask first rather than alcohol, and that strengthens the spirit. And that's in contrast to what would happen in Scotland, for example, where it's much cooler, but also the alcohol leaves the spirit first because it's less humid. So you get mm. very different reactions, very different concentrations of strength and times to mature in different climates. Storage probably makes a big difference. Probably explains why all the sorry. No, go ahead. Probably explains why all the dis, all the distillery tours that I've done in the UK, um, where they store their casks and stuff, it's always in like these big stone outhouses. Clearly, they've desi been designed to keep them as cool as possible. Yes, absolutely, and airflow as well. Like having big kind of drafty spaces can make a difference. So. In bigger warehouses, casks are stored on racks or pallets, which means they're raised slightly from the ground. The air can circulate around them, which leads to uh, greater evaporation. So Glenlivet, for example, uh, have gravel floors and only a small number of casks, so um, that helps them to kind of hold on to liquid. Um, so is it necessary? Um, so the, the, the gap that's left by the evaporating whiskey is filled by air from the environment. That goes through the, the pores of the oak into the barrel and reacts with chemical compounds in the whiskey. So that's how distilleries eliminate unwanted flavours. It allows stronger sulphurous notes to disappear and allows the ABV to drop gradually over time as well because you don't want that pure alcohol that you've put into it, you know. So most people think that this is an essential part of creating your whiskey like you should allow for the angel share because of all the things it does diageo disputes this um as an example there's they've been known to wrap the, their barrels in cling film and they've also put research into new barrel techniques that will you know not affect the flavor and not lose that up to 40 percent of the angel share I found a bunch of articles on this from 2008 saying that they were doing it 
a lot of distilleries are like, why would you do that? It's an essential part. They said they'll see how it affects it in the long run, that it might not affect the younger whiskey so much, but the older ones, they can imagine it would make a big difference. I've found nothing on it since then. Um, <laughs> there, I found some links that don't work anymore to, to articles, and I found no update as to whether like they still do it or it works or it didn't work. So I'm not entirely sure what to make of that. Um, I don't know. If anyone knows, tell me. Uh, there's a film called The Angels Share, which is a comedy uh, drama directed by Ken Loach in 2012. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it comes from from the process, and it's centered around a whiskey distillery um, in Isla's Malt Mill, around a, a fictional cask. Um, and they filmed in various places: the Glengoyne Distillery, uh, the Deanston Distillery, and Bell Blair as well in Edgerton. Worth checking out if you want to uh, watch a film centered around that exact issue. On the flip side of the angel's share is the devil's cut. And the devil's cut is the name given to the amount of whiskey that remains in the wood after the whiskey's been matured and the oak barrels have been emptied. So you, obviously you, you can't, unless you're wrapping it in cling film, you can't do anything about the angel's share, but it is possible to reclaim the whiskey from the devil's cut because there's a lot of contact that goes on between the the spirit and the wood of the casks. So the Devil's Cut has got this quite intense flavour. So Jim Beam, for example, um, have found a way to extract it. They use extracted... um, I don't know, what do they do? They use the extracted liquid to create new releases, which they call Jim Beam's Devil's Cut. They add some distilled water to the cask, and then they turn the cask round at a high speed, like a washing machine. And then after that, they let it mature for some time. And they take what they get out of that and they blend it with some extra aged uh, Kentucky straight bourbon. Um, so, yeah, Jim Beam's Devil's Cut is uh, 45% ABV. And it's said to have extra depth and complexity uh, due to that strong interaction with the wooden casks. Mm. So that's something useful you can do to reclaim it. Yeah. Uh, have you heard of this? I think you have heard of it in another context as well, away from whiskey with rum, and that they call it a different thing. Yes, but obviously I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> it's called the Duppy Share. That's the one. <clears throat> There's a Duppy Share rum, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's still kind of it's rather than an angel, it's more of a ghost or spirit. So Duppy gets used both in singular and plural. Um much Caribbean folklore um, has Duppy, which is regarded generally as a malevolent spirit who brings mm-hmm. misfortune and woe upon uh, uh, those it finds. It haunts people at night, um, and people around the islands claim to have seen them. They've got different incarnations as well, so things like the rolling calf, which is um, a creature said to have chains around its body. I think we can imagine why uh, a three-footed horse as well um, is an example but uh, uh, there's other things as well so in the lesser Antilles they're known as jumbies which I like <laughs> as a word but it goes back to Central Africa so duppy is part of Bantu folklore uh, and a duppy can be a manifestation either in human or animal form of the soul of a dead person or a malevolent supernatural being it likely originates from the Gar language, um, and because most of kind of Jamaica folklore comes from the Ashanti people, 
Um, and in the Ga language of Ghana, Adopi, rather than Dupi, Adopi uh, means dwarf. But in Ghanaian folklore, a lot of spirits were dwarves. So I think it comes from that. Hmm. Uh, in Jamaica, there's a moth called the Dupi bat. So the Dupi bat is not a bat, but it's a moth that does look like a bat. Um, and it seems the embodiment of a lost soul or a soul, uh, you know, kind of wandering. Um, in most other cultures, it's not called that. It's called the black witch moth. So still very kind of supernatural associations with this moth, the black witch. In Brazil, um, they think that when this a moth of this type enters the house, it brings bad omens and it signals the death of a resident. Um, in some parts of Mexico, it, it can mean death, but also people joke that if one flies over someone's head, they're going to lose their hair. Um, <laughs> In Hawaii, black witch mythology it is associated with death, but it's thought that um, a love, if a loved one has just died, then it's the embodiment of that person's soul returning to say goodbye. So it's more positive. Mm -hmm. uh, in the Bahamas, they're known more commonly as money moths or money bats. Um, and the legend is that if they land on you, you will come into money. <laughs> mm, I like that yeah. legend. Exactly. It's it's actually, um, it's initially thought that black witch moth pupae were placed in the mouths of the victims of the serial killer Buffalo Bill and the novel Silence of the Lambs, although obviously they do identify it later as a death's head hawk moth pupae instead. But uh, yeah, connection to that. Which brings me to another question for you. Mm -mm. Um, and maybe you can answer this, maybe you can't, let's find out. So, uh, off the back of Silence of the Lambs, if a drinking bird was sitting on Hannibal Lecter's desk in the novel Silence of the Lambs, what would it be drinking? A Chianti. No! Damn it! <laughs> Is that that bit this. in QI where the alarm goes off? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we mentioned this in our Chianti episode, but although he drinks Chianti in the film, in the 1988 novel, the wine to go with the census taker's liver is a big Amarone. Lambrini. Not Lambrini. Amarone. <laughs> yeah, in the book it's Amarone and they changed it to Chianti for the film. Um, Amarone is made from the Corvina grape, which means like a raven. Very on brand. It's bringing it full circle. Bringing it full circle. Evaporation. Birds. Wings. Death. <laughs> Any closing thoughts from you before I wrap up? Uh, no, I just really want some rum now after that duppy chat. <laughs> and so our glasses have run dry, which means it's time to evaporate like the pair of flappers we are. Cheers, everybody. Cheers. Wherever I may roam, on land or sea or home, you can always hear me singing this song, show me the way to go home. What's the sound of one hand flapping? I don't know, do it. I don't think you're supposed to do that in work, Tim. 